What an amazing time to be alive. What an amazing time to be watching the news and having conversations about the news and consuming all kinds of bits and pieces and opinions from hither and thither, like a little bower bird pecking around the internet and social media, trying to figure out what's true and what's not. But also, what an amazing time to be susceptible and vulnerable to stridency, to misinformation, to whataboutism, to people trying to distract us from what really matters, jangling keys in front of our face in order to get us to look over here instead of remaining stable and calm and even keeled. The only way we can do that is by having conversations that resonate with all of us, conversations that make sense to all of us, conversations that are difficult, conversations that are important, conversations that are a little bit uncomfortable. Today on the show, what a wonderful man, what a funny man, what a warm-hearted man. Michael Ian Black uh, is a comedian extraordinaire. He's got a new book about what it means to be a man. It's basically a letter to his 19-year-old son who's going off to university, and it's a meditation on masculinity, essentially. Uh, So I wanted to talk to him about that, about our political moment, which I should just address before we move on. Uh, The current state of things in the United States is that the president is refusing to concede, even though he clearly lost the election in a number of states. Uh, He is claiming that there was electoral fraud. There is no evidence of electoral fraud. There are a lot of online rumors. I've seen people who I even respect spreading uh, either uncorroborated or out of context misinformation about uh, dead people voting, which when you actually do the fact check and you go back to the sources and you look at CNN and the New York Times and places which for all of their mistakes and for all of their ideological blindedness are not about pumping out outright lies when they actually dig down and they ask the state election officials what is going on there is no evidence of of widespread fraud it's so patently obvious when you look at the motives of the people who are spreading these rumors and the fact that they are not providing any evidence which is standing up in any court or with anyone who knows what they're talking about in terms of data science and electioneering uh, it's so patently obvious that they're doing this for nefarious reasons that I, I hesitate to even give any credence to the claim of, uh, of election fraud. But there it is. You've got the, the leader of the most powerful country in the world and the loser of a democratic election for the first time in U.S. history uh, refusing to accept the result. And don't go on about 2000 and Gore and so on. There you had one state that was extremely tight, extremely close. You were talking about merely hundreds of votes. And of course, you needed to get to the bottom of it and count them all until the Supreme Court stepped in and said, no, stop counting. Uh, That was a, a legitimate cause for delay. It's not a legitimate cause for delay if the margin is not hundreds, but thousands and tens of thousands of votes well beyond the margin of error across a number of different states. Uh, it's just dangerous tomfoolery. But I'm not going to dwell on that. Uh, I will dwell just for a moment about how I feel about the passing of Trump. I know I have some Trump-supporting listeners and friends. Uh, <laughs> some of some of my left-wing friends think it's it's unconscionable that Trump 
voters would listen to me. They say this about Sam Harris as well. I saw an article saying Sam Harris was apparently surprised to find that, you know, up, up, up to a quarter or a third of his listeners are Trump supporters. And he, he feigned surprise, but this just goes to show that he is actually part of the right wing. I'm like, hang on, since when is it a liability to speak in ways that other people find interesting, even if they don't already agree with 100% of what you're talking about? Isn't like, isn't the point of having conversations to not just be in an echo chamber? That's certainly the point of having conversations on this particular program. I can tell you that for nothing. Uh, so I regard it as something of a badge of honor that uh, that we do have a, a pluralistic and diverse range of listeners, and hopefully I can speak to them all in ways that make sense. But let's just take stock then of why I think it's a wonderful thing that Donald Trump will no longer be the president. Um, it's not because of his misogyny, although that's bad. Uh, the whole question of having a, a person with enormous moral failings in the White House is discreet and distinct from the question of what they're doing to the country. Um, it's not because he has said outrageous things like that troops are just suckers and that John McCain wasn't a war hero. I think you're allowed to be dismissive of revered institutions in American public life. It's not even because of locking children in cages. You hear this a lot from that. He's tearing families apart and locking children in cages. I mean, that's horrible. That's a, a terrible policy. I think my own country of Australia's policy of forcibly detaining uh, arrive, people who arrive by boat in, in desert island prison camps for the rest of their lives is horrendous as well. Uh, but there are rationales for it. The line goes that if you do that, then you deter people from making a dangerous trip to come here by boats. And as long as you com combine that with a, a very generous policy of resettling refugees from ref refugee camps around the world, then that's a better way to, to do the best thing from a humanitarian point of view. I don't quite buy that because I think you have a duty of care to people who, who come into your, your country, who come into your embrace to treat them uh, as dignified human beings, not as chattel. But I can understand that there's a difference of, of opinion on that. I don't think that's a reason, that solely is a reason for regarding Trump's presidency as, as an abomination. Um, it's not even because I think he's incredibly dangerous. I mean, in the early days of the Trump administration, a lot of people said, I can't believe this man is going to have his finger on the, on the nuclear trigger. I can't believe he's going to, I mean, he, we are just one, uh, one red button press away from global annihilation with North Korea. It turns out that probably actually isn't quite as risky as we thought it is. The risk of nuclear annihilation is a lot more risky than we think it is, but that's largely because there are too many nukes and there aren't enough safeguards against their accidental deployment. Not because I think that Donald Trump is actually going to nuke Pyongyang. Um, it's not because he's anti-gay. A lot of my friends have said, you know, good riddance to the most anti-gay uh, president. There was a viral video going around of him saying that he, he doesn't support gay marriage. Well, excuse me for spouting a Republican talking point, but he is the first president in history to take office as a supporter of gay marriage, in his, like personally. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton wasn't a supporter of, of gay marriage until what was it about 2009 or something. President Obama wasn't when he took office. He changed, he changed position during office. These are very new cultural things. And if you want to complain about bigotry towards the LGBT community, that is a foundation of conservative Republican thinking. This is not particular to Donald Trump. 
if anything, Trump is a much more cavalier, cosmopolitan, uh, grabbing by the pussy, uh, non-judgy kind of hedonist than the base of his party is. So any generic Republican, for example, Mike Pence, is likely to be more anti-gay than Donald Trump has been. The problem I had with Trump, and the reason why I think we should all breathe huge sighs of relief at this point in time, is, well, there are a few. The first is the idea that America can go it alone without the assistance and cooperation and collaboration of the rest of the world. The 21st century is going to stand or fall on the question of whether or not we can get our shit together about some big transnational problems. The big, the most urgent one, of course, is the pandemic. But the biggest one, the one that's likely to make the pandemic look like a drop in the bucket, and that's going to be by far the most disruptive, is the chaos to weather systems that the change in climate is going to bring. You don't have to be a crazy-eyed, Greta Thunberg-loving, tree-hugging believer in the most extreme predictions of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the world body on this, to nonetheless realise what the Pentagon realises and what insurance companies realise and what indeed oil companies realise as they look at investing in uh, in drilling in parts of the world that had previously been covered in ice, which is that the world is getting hotter and the climate systems are becoming more chaotic and that's going to mean more fires, it's going to mean more cyclones and hurricanes, it's going to mean more displaced people, more droughts, more food crises. And as you have, what, a billion people on the Indian subcontinent enduring changes to uh, the uh, the rain systems, changes to the weather patterns, changes to when they can plant and what they can plant and how they can plant and what's viable where, you're going to see huge movements of people. I mean, prior to the Arab Spring and the Syrian Civil War, we don't focus a lot on the massive spike in food prices that took place as a result of droughts that had been occurring right across the Middle East, unprecedented droughts. Now, of course, there have always been droughts in the Middle East. It's a dry place. There have always been changes to monsoonal patterns in the Asian subcontinent. It's a com- these are complicated things. We don't know for sure exactly how it's going to pan out. But as I heard Elon Musk say recently, it's a game of probabilities. It's not a game of certainties. The future never is. So we need to come together as a globe and figure out how to just begin to get under control the soaring exponential increase in carbon emissions. I mean, get this, half of all carbon emissions have taken place since the Kyoto Protocol was si- on climate change was signed in, I think, was it 1990? In like the past 30 years. So the first half of all climate-inducing, climate-chaos-inducing carbon emissions came out when we perhaps didn't know better just as a result of the Industrial Revolution over the course of hundreds of years. And then the second half have come out when we did know better and we should have been doing something because my kids and their kids and your kids are going to be enduring a world that is at a minimum, let's not go for the dystopian questions, at a minimum, extremely more politically unstable as large refugee flows go swarming around Asia and Africa and the Middle East, 
uh, extremely disrupted financially as we have to amend our farming patterns across North America and Europe and Australia. It's just going to be a much more expensive, destabilized, probably authoritarian, far-right provoking, social unrest inducing uh, time to be alive. So it's not just tree-hugging environmentalism here. The, the, the idea that America can put America first and withdraw from the Paris Climate Accords, withdraw from international agreements, and is going to find some sort of global leadership by being solo is a misunderstanding of the nature of geopolitics in the 21st century. It might have worked in the 1800s. It can't work in the 2000s. So that's the first reason I'm happy to see the, the back of President Trump. The second is more prosaic. It's his self-dealing. It's his corruption, his flagrant corruption. The fact that he has still has Trump hotels. I mean, when he came into power, he said, I'm going to put all my assets into a trust. But it's not a blind trust. It's a trust that his children control. Other presidents have put their own personal financial dealings into a blind trust, meaning that someone who they don't know and they don't talk to manages it in the complete absence of any, under- of any information about what the president might be doing. That's the correct and kosher way of doing things. If you are in a position to make decisions that are going to have huge financial and economic ramifications for all kinds of different sto- stocks, that's the correct thing to do, to keep it at arm's length. Instead, what are we, t- are we going to believe that he doesn't talk to... Eric Trump and to Donald Trump Trump Jr. and to Ivanka and to Jared. These are the people who, they, they, I mean, they are literally privy to decisions that are going to have big impacts on the assets that he owns. That's not okay. He literally owns hotels where the implicit agreement is that foreign world leaders are going to stay and give him personally money while they're there on government business to visit him as a government official. This is just flagrant, open, unapologetic self-dealing to an extent that we haven't seen in the White House, well, I don't know about ever, but certainly not within my living memory. The third reason I'm happy to see the back of him is the abuse of power. The pressure that he is putting on America's system of checks and balances the extent to which he is trying to smash through not just norms. Norms sounds a bit of feat, like, oh, we've got these norms. You shouldn't do this. And he comes in saying, well, why shouldn't I do it? It's all very well to upset a norm. But it's not all very well to take a system that was designed very carefully to have different strands, an executive branch, a legislative branch, and a judicial branch, and just start muddying them together so that you use the Attorney General of the United States as essentially your own personal lawyer to go through the Mueller report and tweak it and twist it and manipulate it and redact it uh, two weeks before you actually release the report so that you can get the spin on it. It's not okay to fire the director of the FBI because he's investigating you. It's not okay to pardon Sheriff Joe Arpaio for criminal behavior because it was benefiting you personally, politically in a partisan way. It's not okay to wield these tools as tools to subvert justice rather than uphold it. Is there a bit of this all the time? Yes. Outgoing presidents always pardon their mates. I don't believe in the pardon power at all. I think the pardon power is absolutely bonkers. It's just crazy to me. It's so obviously something from a dictatorship. Like I think of pardoning people and I think of a king. 
I don't think a president should have the ability to reach into the justice department, justice system, and overturn the rulings of the justice system. I won't get into a whole conversation about that, but whatever problems there are with the justice system, whatever injustices there are, they have to be dealt with inside the, that column of power, meaning the justice system. I don't know why the executive gets to reach in and and undo it. It's so obviously a way for personal uh, personal score settling and personal payback and personal thanks to people who've broken the law to do you a favour. Another reason I'm happy to see the back of him is uh, justices, not just justices on the Supreme Court, but on federal courts. Uh, It is galling to a foreigner to see so much of American politics filtered through the justice system so that whether it's the Affordable Care Act or whether it's campaign finance reform or whether it's gun law reform, so much of this is contingent on courts, on judges deciding whether or not the laws that are written by the duly elected representatives of the American people are constitutional. And if you are stacking courts with people who are inimical to legislatures passing, for example, I mean, I think the most important thing would be campaign finance reform, so it's just not quite so expensive to get elected in America, so that there isn't quite so much power from drug companies and other and, you know, oil companies to shape policy. Uh, if you've got courts that simply prevent any laws like that from being passed, that's a real problem. And I come lastly to my biggest problem with Trump and my biggest sense of relief to why he is no longer going to be with us, touch wood. It's anti-expertise. It's this anti-elitism. Well, it couches itself as anti-elitism. But what it actually is, is a disdain and disrespect for people who know what they're doing. There's a kind of a pandering to base mob mentality, a hollowing out of the institutions and the systems from both the public health service to environmental experts to policy experts that is fundamentally unserious is fundamentally just treats the whole edifice of Western civilization almost as a joke, and American democracy as a joke. Everything's a kind of alt-right meme gag. Nothing's to be taken seriously, nothing's to be revered, nothing's to be regarded as holy. Might sound a bit funny to talk about the institutions of government and policy as being holy, but I think they are. I think they're as close to holy as anything ought to be. The fact that we have been able to establish the levels of prosperity, peace, and comity that we have in the past couple of hundred years for all of their faults, for all of their racial injustices, for all of their inequality, for all of their gender injustices, compared to any other place or time in history, where would you rather be than in the West in the 21st century? And to come swaggering into that system and piss all over it, and burn it down because it's not functioning precisely the way that you might like, to not listen to health experts, to not give a shit about defence experts, to not give a shit about what your allies think or what institutional, what international agreements your predecessor made, to simply be about owning your opponents and blustering has been the most damaging aspect of the Trump administration. 
I also want to be able to ignore national politics again. It shouldn't be this important in our lives. It certainly shouldn't loom this large in the lives of non-Americans. Politics should be a fairly boring thing that runs in the background, that sustains the edifice of civilization, that allows us to have some democratic say, but not to get caught up in culture war, mob rule, hostilities and passions. We're way too inflamed. The temperature is way too high. And I'm looking forward to that being cooled down. Now, some will say, hang on, the temperature is not just high on the right, the temperature is very high on the left as well. If you talk about culture wars, what about cancel culture? What about the hysteria of anti-racists? What about Antifa? What about Black Lives Matter? What about protesters burning down cities? What about people rioting? All of that's true. And I half blame it on Trump. The idea that a Joe Biden administration is going to empower the far left is utterly misguided. A second Trump term would have deranged the left. It would have hollowed out any sense of sensible, centrist, left-wing agitation that cares about bread and butter issues, like how people can afford their health care, like inequality, like good wages, good schools. And it would have replaced those, swamped them almost entirely, as it has for the past few years, really with this kind of hysterically angry performative social justice. That is not intrinsic to the left. That is a reaction to Trump's provocation. Part of the insidious nihilism of that man is that he can not only rally his base, he can rally his opponents. He's got you like a puppet on a string. And everyone is just an actor in the Trump saga. None of that was a good look for the left. I want my left back. I want people who care in reason, in justice, in clear argumentation, in sound thought, in compassion, and most of all, in expertise. Here's to the next four years. Michael Ian Black, if you are not one of the two million people who follow him on Twitter is well known for his role in Wet Hot American Summer and then the revival of Wet Hot American Summer, which was a Netflix redo recently called Wet Hot American Summer 10 years later. He's got a bunch of uh, of stand-up specials. He's a wonderful thinker. I specifically wanted to talk to him about what it means to be a real man, what it means to be a good man in this age of a crisis of masculinity. But obviously, and needless to say, we also joke around a bit and we drift into areas about politics and Trump too. It's a meandering conversation. It's a wonderful one. He's a bit of a national or international treasure. Uh, enjoy this conversation with Michael A. Black. Because I'm in a studio, I don't have a video. Uh, so I'm just, you can turn yours off, and then you can you can you can do a. Who's the CNN guy from? Uh, who was Jeffrey? Uh, what's his face? Oh, that's a great question. Who's the CNN guy who was Jeffrey What's-His-Face? Is that what you just asked? That's what I just asked. Jeffrey Lord? No, the, uh, the, he's, a, he's a legal analyst, and he got caught on Zoom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeffrey yeah. Tubing. See what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't that hard. Um, no, it wasn't. Well, that's a good pun. Mm. Hey, there you go. Oh, dear, oh, dearie me. What times? What times we live in? How are you doing? Uh, you know, mm. fine. 
Fine. Mm. How are you? Uh, I'm pretty well at the moment. It's been ups and downs. Uh, yeah. I feel very. I feel bad about about ever complaining because things are going so much better here than they are elsewhere, and things are basically they back really to normal. Are. They really are. You can go to restaurants. You can go to restaurants. You can go to bars. You can go to do whatever you want. Do whatever yeah. the hell you. I went to a movie, Michael. I I don't even know what that means. I went to several, not consecutively, uh, but on uh, subsequent weeks. And I, you were wearing what, like a like a, some sort of protective I didn't. suit? No, Scubigi, no, or no, I didn't need it. So you were you were in the theater by yourself? No, they, they locked no. it from everybody else. No, no, they leave an empty seat. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't go to. I wouldn't go oh, to. It's a one seat theater. Got it. It's a one seat theater. Well, that makes sense. I call it more of a theaterette in my basement. It's in my living room. No, it's a it's a real real theater, and uh, it wasn't very busy. And there were a few people wearing masks, uh, and mm-hmm. I got to stretch out. The only problem is that the the big wigs in Hollywood, your fat cats, they're not releasing uh, nothing. So everything no, that, everything that's on the screens. Yeah, and you know you don't want to rely on the Australian film industry to keep you thoroughly entertained, so <laughs> so yeah, yeah yeah. There's a lot of like old Bond movies. I right. saw that Spartacus was airing. What about cinema. Uh, what about Strictly Ballroom? That that's probably playing, right? I don't. I think we give our films about three years and then we try to forget about them, unless they are Priscilla or Mad Max. <laughs> right, that's it. Right. Uh, Mad so, Max is terrific. You could watch that all the time. You know where I'm going in a week, uh, Michael? I'm going uh, to the part of Australia where Mad Max was shot on a family vacation to take the kids to the outback for the first time. That's just, that's just the interior? That's the interior of the, of the continent. Right. Mm. And there's a Mad Max museum, which I'm sure huh. my three-year-olds will find e- either horrifying or bemusing. Yeah, or, or, or just they'll have no interest in it at all. <laughs> It's probably quite true. They'll be more interested in the in the the. Although dust. if they have if, if they have like full cars from the movie, that would that that would probably excite. Let's not get carried away. Right. I think they probably have some corrugated iron uh, <laughs> and a boot that was worn by not Mel Gibson but Mel Gibson's stand-in. Right. It's that sort of place. Uh, it. But it's been weird. It's been a funny funny year because you know we had a lockdown and I can't imagine what it's like to still be essentially locked down. Well, we never had a lockdown. We've just been going about our right. daily lives, <laughs> infecting everybody we see. Right. But you, I mean, you've had, yes, this is the irony. By not having a lockdown, you have a de facto voluntary lockdown because nobody wants to go out to a packed restaurant when it might make them very, very sick. You'd be surprised. Really? Josh, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, it is weird. I mean, where I am in Connecticut, uh, mask compliance is very, very high, like oh, well over 90%. So you won't go anywhere where you're not seeing masked people. This is because uh, but, uh, people in Connecticut are communist authoritarians. That's right. And you'll go anywhere. You, and, and, but, but, um, but places are like, they feel normal in a way, aside from the masks, like business is being conducted. People are um, out in public. There's maybe fewer of them, but it. But if you didn't know there was a pandemic, uh, you you wouldn't think just by the population that anything was particularly wrong. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, I just assume it's a wasteland, like uh, because New York yeah. is still a wasteland, right? And I think London's still a wasteland. 
I haven't been to New York in months and months and months, so I don't know, but I hear it's a wasteland. Yeah. Um, but New York's a different situation because it's so congested normally. People are just in such close contact. Here in Connecticut, you know, you can, you get a little elbow room. Sure, you can ride a moose down High Street. And we normally do. That's, that's how you get around. Uh, so you've been going out and socializing. You've been having your wild parties and going out raging at the Connecticut uh, saloons. Uh, but w- w- how has it been being around your family more? Uh, well, you know, because I am an actor, I am therefore often unemployed. And so, uh, it's not that unusual for me to be around the house. Right. Uh, right. I was looking, ha- I did look, I was, I see here on your, uh, on your resume, Michael, that you're a, an actor and a comedian. And then I went to your website and uh, went to the touring page with the upcoming touring dates. Yeah, and uh, it's a, a blank page, and at the top of That's the page right. it says there are no upcoming events at this time. That's exactly right. There are no upcoming events at this time. Uh, the comedy world here is non-existent. Show business is uh, very slow, but percolating a tiny bit. I'm shooting something tomorrow, a little oh. something. Oh. I shot something a few weeks ago and a couple weeks before that. All very low paid, Josh. Don't misunderstand Right. Me. But it's very, very low paid. It's better than when you say shooting something. I mean, that could be I'm just going to be shooting something on Instagram on my phone and I'm not even getting any money. But you're getting people are paying you in 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 cash. Yes. In American dollars, American, which is still the world's currency. It is the world's Uh, currency. It's even doing quite well in spite of all this. uh, Yeah, and has been. I don't know why. I mean, I guess because. Nobody else is kind of stepping up and saying, we'll take over the world. Yeah. Well, you've got to watch those Chinese. They, I think they've got their eyes on it. Well, clearly they do. And uh, honestly, like, doesn't seem so bad. The Chinese ruling the world? Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's, it's a gentle totalitarianism if you're not a Uyghur. <laughs> I was just going to say, have you spoken to many of the Muslim <laughs> Uyghurs in the west of the country uh, about this gentle uh, authoritarianism <laughs> of which you speak. No, but that's true. If you're a, if you're a Han person and you're in uh, Beijing and you're making it rain money, you know, and you're doing the kind of rapper thing where you hold hold uh, bills in your hand and you you fly them off. At, uh, it's probably fine, right? It's probably as fine. As, as long as you don't agitate or discuss politics or make a ruckus about anything, mm. have an It'd opinion be, of any. Yeah, just don't. And honestly, kind. it would be a relief for me to not have opinions. I would, it would be. <laughs> now, that, that would, is interesting, and this is something we'll get into about having political opinions because I've got a bit of a bug, bug, bugaboo, bug, bugbear. Is that a thing? Sure. I got yeah, one of those uh, at the moment. And in an earlier episode of this podcast, I was talking uh, to Oliver Berkman. I don't know if you know Oliver. No. He's a Guardian journo who lives in uh, New York, who's a, but he's a Brit. And uh, his big thing is kind of that we pay too much attention to the news and that we're spending too much time, like social media and kind of social media activism are deranging us all because we're spending way too much time focusing on rather abstract things like national politics and not enough time focusing on things that actually matter, like trees and sunshine and our cat. Uh, um. Are those the examples that he gives? Those are my. That's me, uh, really taking what he's offered and then and then raising that and improving (laughs) on it. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's hard to argue with him that we're spending too much time on social media, paying attention to things that maybe don't affect us directly. On the other hand, Mm. uh, if no, if we're not paying attention, then the people who are instituting 
these horrendous policies will just go about it without any pushback. So it's a kind of double-edged sword. By horrendous policies, I assume you mean, and this is how I know that the US dollar is doing quite well, uh, because I got in the mail uh, uh, a check from your president. Yes, mm. still your president, Michael, uh, for 3400 US dollars. He sent it yeah. all the way to Australia for me. This was for the family for pandemic relief. Uh, oh. and, I, and I went and I, I cashed that check and it was, uh, you know, it was like almost five grand Australian. So I'm glad to see that your country's being run so well. So you're an American citizen? I'm a permanent resident. I have a green card and, my, and I'm married to a U.S. citizen. So if you're a taxpayer, then even if you're living abroad, you still get a little bit of that sweet booty. So permanent resident does not at all mean permanent resident. Uh, it's supposed to. And if I, if I stay outside of the country for long enough, they'll take my green card away. Uh, but I'm right. hoping that I can appeal on the basis of the, uh, the pandemic that there are extenuating circumstances as to why I haven't been residing in the United States lately. Right. I mean, you might have to get back that money at some point. Well, I think if I keep paying taxes, shouldn't I get to keep the tax tax booty? And I'll just keep calling it a booty. Yeah, I, I well, mean, as long as you, yeah, as long as you're paying taxes, yeah, you can you can yeah. work that booty all you want. And keep I, working that booty. Thank you, Michael. And I think I need I think I do need to keep paying taxes because one of the weird things about the U.S. Here's a little civics lesson for you: is that it's one of the only countries in the world, certainly the only developed country, where regardless of where you live in the world or for how long you don't return, don't set foot on U.S. soil. You have to keep paying U.S. taxes and lodging your taxes in the States Good. if you're a citizen. Good. Good, you say. Makes, makes perfect sense to me. Explain. Well, if you're, if you're a U.S. citizen, then presumably you are the recipient of benefits of the American system, and you should pay into the American system. I mean, if, you, if, you're, if you're a citizen and you get in trouble, you go to the embassy, right? If you, if you, uh, That's an expensive embassy visit if you're paying taxes your entire life and you're never using a road or a... <laughs> It's a, it's a re- I'd rather just pay out of pocket. Is there? A, can I do a copay for the embassy visit? Instead Maybe of- there, there, there might, there might be a uh, an option where you just pay per service. That that's possible. Uh, we're going to talk uh, about we're going to talk about your book in a moment, and we're going to talk about the, about things that don't relate to the news. But I, but because of the, and I don't want this podcast is not about is not reactive to the news. But because I'll be releasing this uh, fairly soon. But and it is reactionary, right? It is. It is a reactionary podcast in a strictly political yeah. sense. Uh, okay, yeah, and but but I think we have to talk about what's going on in the world, uh, um, specifically uh, what I had just had for breakfast um, before we get to the political side of things. Because I was I went to get some uh, some milk at the supermarket across the road, and uh, I was a bit peckish, um, and I saw that there were there was a tub of New Zealand mussels. Uh, hmm. You know how they'll sometimes, they, they're shocked and they're just mm-hmm. in a little tub and they're in brine and it was in chili, in a chili brine. And it I was, mean, this, se- is, this is something you would never find in the States. You, you would, would never find shocked mussels in a chili brine. Oh, a chili out. meaning like hot, hot sauce, right? You know, no, the hot, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I understand. You, it, it, they're not even in the shell. They're shocked. They're, they're shocked. already shocked. Yeah. They're yeah, floating. They're like little see- little pale uh, beige New Zealand turds in a in a pinkish uh, chili brine, and I'm just talking about a small supermarket. We're not talk- this isn't a big place. This is a little corner store. That's the kind of quality of, of produce that you can expect in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, but I think some- you and I have different different definitions of what produce is. Why is that? A th- is what is produce? Fruits and vegetables. Oh, oh, maybe I lived in the states for twelve years and never understood that. I just thought yeah. people it wouldn't include toilet paper. 
Uh, those would be uh, uh, household goods or sundries. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm doubting my own definition. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think. But, hang on. Aren't sundries edible? I don't know. It's What's just a, a word that I've seen every now and again. And a sundry, never, sounds, never like, a sundry sounds like something that you could get on a plane. You could buy on a plane uh, to, to keep your appetite at bay. Let me see. Sundries. I've got a dictionary. Various items not important enough to be mentioned individually. A drugstore yeah, selling magazines, newspapers, and sundries. Huh. Uh, produce uh, dictionary definition, things that have pr- produced or grown, especially by farming. Well, that would include a muscle, wouldn't it? Mm, no. It's not grown yeah. by farming? I mean, I mean, no, no. No. I mean, maybe there's a muscle farm somewhere. <laughs> of course there's a muscle farm somewhere, Michael. They don't ha- Where do you think the muscles come from? They just walk along the shore and hope to find one? Yes, yes. They come from the sea. <laughs> yes, they, really come from, they come from muscle farms in the sea. They come from You're big... You're really scratching the definition of produce okay, in, right. in, in an uncomfortable way. Okay, I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. My point is simply that at 7.30 in the morning, I'm in a small mini-mart... Uh, and buying milk, and I so I buy a, a pot of these mussels, and for some reason thought that it would be a good idea before talking to you early in the morning, without on an empty stomach, to <laughs> to eat a pot of chili uh, mussels, freshly shucked from New Zealand. <laughs> and that sounds abominable. I mean, first thing in the morning, that just sounds abominable. <laughs> no, I mean, I've got a coffee now to kind of get rid of the taste in my mouth, but I can still so feel... Combine the mussels, the chili mussels with coffee. <laughs> yeah, I know. As long, yeah. Okay, as long as you're pairing chili mussels and coffee, I think that's fine, because that's, that's fine. the classic pairing. <laughs> that is the, that's a classic, that's a breakfast of champions, stretching back <laughs> to the Roman times. Uh, but I've still got a little bit of that kind of furry, you know, muscle, somebody, you'll have a little furry muscle taste? No, no, I don't no. know what that means. You don't know what that is. Okay. Well, you got to come no, down to Australia. No, I mean no. If that's if those are my breakfast options, no. That's that's the classic Australian breakfast option. No, I don't want to mislead you. I don't want to mislead you. The classic Australian <laughs> breakfast option is kangaroo steak uh, on a bed of wild koala. Uh, served on a boomerang. Served on, served on a boomerang, exactly. Um, so the, the, we happen to be in a weird political moment. Uh, how are you feeling about that? Uh, you know, in general, fairly good. Um, but of course, you know, it's going it, to, it's going to, it, it's going to have to be pretty good for the moment until there is an actual transition. Uh, because at the moment, our beloved, uh, commander in chief is just refusing to acknowledge reality, which is troublesome. And to people who are listening to this after the fact, uh, the, we are speaking, on the 12th of November, uh, so we're a week out from the election. Uh, oh, basically, wait, how long ago was the election? Why my brain's fried? So a week and a half, right? Yeah. And uh, the president still hasn't, has not only not uh, conceded, it, it, what surprises me is that the rest of the Republican Party seems to somewhat be supporting him in these baseless allegations of widespread electoral fraud on the part of the Democrats. It's interesting, Michael, that the Democrats stole the White House, but they didn't go for the Senate. You'd think we would have, right? You should have. That's an I mean, oversight. It makes, it makes it would have made our lives so much easier. Also, if we're going to rig the election, we would have we would have rigged Florida. You know, just take Florida, erase well, all right. the data. Yeah, 
That's right. Why why make it a why make it a tiny margin? But maybe hang on, that's not fair. Maybe it's easier to do tiny margins across a number of states. Maybe, but Georgia isn't one of the ones you'd pick. No, uh, you'd, you'd 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 do Florida. You would, and then and then there just wouldn't be any issue at all. It's a very good point. Uh, yeah, it's uh, look, it's a it's a stupid system uh, run by generally stupid people and uh, and presided over at the moment by a nightmarish president. So you know things are things are looking better because. Come January, there will be a new president, but you know it could be a bumpy road before we get there. I was a little worried on election day uh, when I started tuning in around lunchtime here, and uh, and started seeing red, red, red. Now my worry is less that he'll be able to stay in power. I don't think he will, but more that the the bigger battle is to retain to enable people to retain a faith in in democracy and to come along for the ride, regardless of who the president is. Like I've always sort of admired uh, our ability. I was going to say America's ability, but it's it's sort of widespread across the Western world to put aside our differences. And once the government is formed, then that's the government and it's the government for everybody. And Trump was a bit of an anomaly there because he was so, uh, so keen and enthusiastic about being a representative just of his side of politics and a very sort of thin wedge of his side of politics. Uh, that was fairly nationalistic and identitarian. and But I was sort of hoping that when he went away, we'd all be able to come behind the next government, the next administration. And my worry is that all this stuff, all this hoo-ha, is that what he's basically doing is just trying to plant enough booby traps in the mind of a sufficiently large minority of Americans that they're never going to accept a, a Biden administration. Well, that is certainly true whether he's uh, planting the booby traps or not. I mean, his his core supporters, uh, which seem to number a lot more than I had hoped, uh, will, yeah, have a difficult time adjusting to reality. Uh, and I don't, I don't know what that means. I mean, I don't know what that looks like other than I think the Senate is going to continue to be as obstinate and, uh, difficult as they can be with the new administration. Uh, that's what they did under Obama, and they will continue to do it under Biden. And it's just going to be ugly. I mean, it's just it's just going to continue to be ugly. And I don't I don't know if there's anything anybody can do about it right now. Uh, the the <laughs> fact that the president needs to win, like I heard an, an, an analyst who was saying, like if Biden was uh, if if it weren't for the electoral college and Biden was just ahead the way that Biden was ahead at like 8 p.m. on election night, then you'd just call it. Because like in in all of the other races, all of the Senate races and the House races, once someone's, you know, ahead by not just 1%, but like, you know, they're sort of like ahead by 2, 3, 4%, then once you've, after you've adjusted for all of the stuff that, you know, is going on demographically in terms of the way votes come in, then you just call it. But he can, but Biden can be ahead by 3%, 4%, 5%, 6%, like 7%, and it's still like, oh, too close to call because of this, the, the Electoral College, but which we're not going to talk about because it is infuriating and boring. Uh, yeah, but if we were to get rid of the Electoral College, think about what it would do to Southerners in the 1700s. <laughs> like you have to be mindful <laughs> of Southerners in the 1700s. Well, what about Southerners today? They would no longer be able to wield I mean, disproportionate... It would, it would, it would, uh, it would certainly uh, benefit some of them, the electoral college and it disenfranchises many others. Mm. 
Yes, that's true. And it's not all Southerners. It's really the Midwesterners who have us, uh, who have us over a barrel. Uh, I guess that's true, if only because the Southern states tend to vote in a block, um, despite their, you know, lower uh, population uh, as a percentage of the entire country, they they can they they wield a lot of power as a mm, block. That's true. And I should just clarify here that there's there's nothing necessary. Whenever I broach this, I get uh, texts and uh, uh, tweets and your emails and so on from people saying, "Yeah, but America's not a, a direct democracy. America's not a, a it's not mob rule. It's a republic." Which is very true and fine, and nobody wants uh, just majoritarian rule regardless of the consequences. But you also don't want to implement a situation where there is entrenched minority rule that makes right. it almost impossible for the majority's wishes to get fulfilled because at every step of the way, whether it's the justice system through the Supreme Court, the Senate through the overrepresentation of smaller states, the Electoral College electing the White House and gerrymandering in the House, so that you manage to, to get people who are representing minorities and the same minority of, mm-hmm. uh, of white conservatives – that's ruling right. over everybody. That's, that's not a republic. I mean, a, you know, a republic is supposed to be, if it's a representative democracy, then you're supposed to vote for your representatives and then they all go to Washington and they hash things out and they pass some laws. But it's not even that. No, it's minority rule. I mean, it's bizarre. I mean, the closest thing is, uh, it's, I mean, I was going to say it's not quite this bad, but depending on your point of view, I mean, it's, it's like an apartheid. In South Africa, I mean, it's it's definitely it's a, not as bad. I'll I'll I'll, I'll roll with you on the uh, on the qualification, but um, it is and well, it's it, it it's it's becoming increasingly like that. Uh, not in terms of the obviously horrific conditions of South Africa, but in terms of an entrenched white angry minority. Um, gumming up everything else and 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 controlling the nation where they where they don't have the numbers to do it and that seems to be the entire Republican strategy. I can see the Breitbart headline: Michael Ian Black says woke white liberals are as oppressed as black South Africans <laughs> in the seventies. <70s>. <laughs> Brooklyn is the new Johannesburg. That's right. Yeah. Um, well. Yeah, and I guess Queens would be Soweto. <laughs> you just wanted to get Soweto in there. <laughs> I know. Yeah. You're always doing this. Every time we speak, you're trying in front of a way to get Soweto into the conversation. I fell, I walked right into it. Uh, so let's talk about, uh, about, about culture and about gender and about manhood, because this is the subject of your, uh, of your new book. I've got your last book. I read, I read to my children a child's first book of Trump. Oh, which is a wonderful, a wonderful picture book for children. Mm-hmm. Uh, my partner even uh, even uh, Instagrammed a a footage of our daughter saying that Trump was a horrible man, and then apparently you retweeted or something. I, I can't even remember without uh, probably not even knowing. No, I, I, I didn't know that. I mean, I, I don't remember retweeting it, retweeting it. But if I did, I would not have known that that was your partner. Well, anyway, thank you for getting him some more followers. Oh yeah. And now the the next, your latest book is about what it, what it is like what it is to be a a man. It's called a better man, and it's uh, mm-hmm. you've written it essentially as a letter to your son who is how old now? He's going off to college. Nineteen. 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 What motivated this? Well, uh, it was a number of things. The long answer and the short answer are somewhat different but related. Um, 
the long answer, well, I'll give you the short answer. And then if you want more, I'll give it to you. Okay. The the short answer is my son was leaving for college and I saw. Is there a wolf in the background? Are you in in any danger? If you're in any danger, Uh, feel free to move to a safe house. We maintain a few wolves because the (laughs) wilds of Connecticut can be a little bit dicey. I thought that the diciness of the wilds of Connecticut was in the fact that there are wolves and such. Yeah. Yeah. But if you, you, what you want to do is you want to have house wolves to combat the wood wolves. (laughs) Right. Right. Are there many battles between the two? (laughs) It seems like it seems foolhardy to me. I would just eradicate the wolves altogether and leave the outside wolves outside and close my doors to to any kind of uh, wild dog. You'd think, (laughs) but we just we just love our wolves here in Connecticut. Okay, good for you. All right, as long as you're safe, you can continue with the short slash long answer. The short answer is that I sort of saw an opportunity to have this conversation with my son as he was getting ready to leave. for college. And so I took that opportunity and wrote him a letter or a, 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 in the form of a book or a book in the form of a letter, depending on how you want to look at it. What's the long answer? Because I pretty much answer. already covered the. I feel like I did a, as good a job as you did at the short answer, but it just by introducing it and saying, you've got a book, it's called <laughs> a better man. It's a letter to your son. He's 19. He's going off to college. And then you basically just repeated back to me the Length, setup in a lengthier way in a slightly longer and more roundabout way that added nothing right right the long answer involves gun violence and being horrified at the uh shooting that took place at the uh in parkland florida when he was just entering his senior year of high school and being uh, and I, I am a, I uh, have long been an outspoken anti-gun person, and I just fired off a series of tweets about it. And one of the tweets was, I mean, the the the, the, the gist of the tweets was, why is it always boys who are doing these things? You know, I, I I tend to blame guns and gun manufacturers and all the rest of it, mm. and conservative politicians who refuse to pass any sort of legislation. And I still do blame all of those factors. But one of the factors that I felt like was never addressed was the fact that it was always boys and young men pulling the trigger. And uh, that Twitter thread uh, got got picked up. So, you know, people were seeing it. And then the New York Times wanted me to write an op-ed about it. So I wrote an op-ed about it. And then a book publisher asked me if I wanted to expand it into a book. And I reluctantly said yes. Do you think there's there's something particular about our moment that is uh, responsible for that behavior, or do you think that that is intrinsic to uh, young manhood? Um, I think there is something. I, I think intrinsic is a complicated word because I don't know if by intrinsic you mean biologically or so, sociological. Well, either I think. I mean, if something is so widespread as a sociological and environmental phenomenon, then we might as well uh, ignore the question of nature versus nurture and just treat it as what common is, enough to be. What is certainly intrinsic is that men and uh, people of the male sex commit the overwhelming majority of violence in the world um, and always have. So that is intrinsic, whether it is um, the, the, the factors that make that so, I think are a combination of things. 
Um, as far as like gun violence specifically, I do think that there is something about this moment that makes it more likely. Um, a, a lot of things about this moment that make it more likely, not the least of which is just the fact that other people have done it before. And so somebody mm. gets in stupid head that they're going to do it too. Um, but I, li- I like that. I mean, I think that explanation actually is, is under, uh, underappreciated in all of this. And I take, I obviously share all of your con- concerns about guns and I'm proud of uh, Australia for having had the, the gumption under a conservative leader in the nineties to do something about it, which by the way, to American listeners was not primarily about taking guns away from people. It was primarily about, about proper licensing and then tracking and responsibility and liability and rules such as if a gun that you have purchased is used in a crime or to kill somebody, then you are responsible. You're not responsible for murder, but you're responsible for, uh, you know, it, you can't just say, oh, I lost it or it got stolen. Everything has to be reported. And so there's a better, better tracking system. There are actually more guns in Australia now than there were before the, um, the massacre that, that uh, triggered the, 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 legal, the changes to the legislative changes. But I mean, I think this idea of it being a kind of almost mimetic uh, panic, like a slow motion copycat wave that takes place over years and decades it's it's almost like a st- a slow motion stampede. I've heard it described as where if you are one of these uh, borderline kids who are struggling with all of the frustrations and emasculations and violent ideations of of boyhood, then there are multiple ways that that could express itself. And if you have an easy off the shelf template that you've seen glamorized in the past then that occurs to you in a way that it wouldn't if it hadn't been happening. So it becomes a, there's a snowballing effect. Yeah, I do think it has a lot of resonance for young men, uh, the kind that you just described. So that was the immediate um, impetus for the book. But the book isn't about gun violence, although I do talk, I begin the book with um, remembering Sandy Hook, which occurred very close to my home. And uh, that, that, was day the, when- that was the primary school where all the, the small, I mean, they were like five or six or something, weren't they, the children who were massacred there? Oh, no, it was 20. No, I mean, uh, like they were, they were of oh, their age, young yes. school age. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, They were around six, six years yeah. old, six, seven years old. Um, and uh, my kids were in elementary school at that time, not very far from that event. And, uh, and then they were in high school when this high school event happened. And so, you know, it was a combination that that's, that's the long answer. It was yeah, gun violence yeah. that started me off. And, 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 and as we just, uh, as you just learned, it was a long answer. Yeah, I, that was a good one, though. I think if I had to choose between the the, the upside of the brevity of the first answer versus <laughs> the the upside of the substantive content of the second, I'd go for the, for the latter any day of the week. I mean, every day of the week. I mean, eventually I'd get bored of it if we were having this conversation every day and you just kept saying the long answer over and over. But I could, mm-hmm. I'd get a good three or four days out of it before I was like, well, Michael, part stop. Of reason, part of the reason I abridge the answer is because often when I'm asked that, that question, I'm under some time constraint yes, to answer. I know. You're on your talk shows and so on where they give you eight minutes. There's no eight-minute clock ticking here. Right. I would be surprised if you had an eight-minute clock. That would be a very unusual clock. That would be, wouldn't it? Would that be, I guess it's a hard-boiled egg? Uh, That sounds about right, yeah. Or maybe a semi-hard-boiled? Maybe one of those ones that you get in a Japanese ramen where it's kind of hard, but there's still a little bit of uh, softness to the yolk. 
I'm just looking up how long to boil eggs. And, uh, excellent uh, podcasting. Three minutes for soft boiled, six minutes for medium, 12 minutes for hard boiled. There you go. So it's right in between that. It's, it's perf- I was perfectly accurate in saying it's sort of halfway between a medium uh, and yeah. a hard boiled egg. Yeah. Uh, when you think about the way that, that masculinity gets expressed, and in the past there was this rather, like, you know, pre-sort of 60s, there's this rather uncomplicated... Uh, idea of what a man's role is. Um, how are we doing in terms of understanding where what the position of men is? Because I can't quite figure out whether... Obviously, there have been so many advances for women and now for LGBT people and specifically now for trans people, and there's a lot of question marks about what gender is. You just alluded to the nature-nurture thing, like how much of it is innate. I, I am increasingly, as I get older... And as I have kids, increasingly sort of unpopular on the unpopular side of this, sort of suspecting that there actually is something behaviorally innate about gender and that maybe in our zeal to quash the violent, nasty, toxic aspects of masculinity, we're also leaving young men somewhat adrift and emasculated and uncertain of what they are supposed to be doing. Um, yes. So that was a question couched in an editorial. And that's correct. That's, that's the way I conduct this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So to answer your question, how we're doing not well, uh, and to respond to your editorial, I actually agree with you and say so in the book that there is, I think, uh, a significant biological component to it. However, um, if we, My concern about that is if we assign too much importance to the biological component, which I agree with you, there is some of, maybe a significant amount of, what ends up happening, I think, culturally, is that we end up with the same um, traditional sort of dichotomy between male and female and the same gulf that separates us. And I think what is true is there are certain behaviors that boys exhibit and girls exhibit on the average that we can say are more typically associated with boys and are more typically associated with girls. And there probably is a kind of average behavior. um, Goddamn wolves. And you hear how (laughs) that's not a wolf. What was that? It's a, it's a castrato wolf. (laughs) He has, he has a, what kind of operation are you running there, Michael? Well, he, if you're going to have a wolf, you want them to howl in the right. most beautiful. It's angelic. Uh, angelic timber. Wow. Yeah, that and sounds. So, uh, that does sound like a wolf puppy who you've stolen from its mother <laughs> and have kept in the basement and have viciously ripped its testicles out, and now it's just it's howling to the moon. Yeah, but just uh, it, it, all of what you said is true, but just gorgeous, just a gorgeous howling voice. Um, I think there is a kind of uh, uh, bell curve of behavior where there is sort of typical male and female behavior. And then there's a lot of, you know, there's less overlap, but there is overlap. Um, and my concern about assigning too much importance to the biological component is that you end up segregating the sexes in a way that I don't think is particularly helpful. I do think that it's important to acknowledge that there are probably biological difference, almost certainly biological differences um, that explain 
some male behavior, but not all, and some female behavior, but not all, and that some boys exhibit behavior that is more traditionally associated with girls and vice versa. What do you make of the rise of sort of incels and the alt-right and the appeal of people like Jordan Peterson and the, the, the virality of that West Point speech that that general gave a couple of years ago where he was basically saying, like, you've got to clean up your room. Like, the, the thing to start doing is just to, to start small and show discipline that there's a, um, I don't know, almost like there's, there's an untapped and kind of stultified uh, passion for some form of greatness and manliness and hero's journey that is not being expressed and that's getting diverted into these perverted sort of corridors in our current culture and that maybe there should maybe the healthy way to react to what you're talking about that biological difference without having to segregate the sexes and return to the 1950s is to find fruitful ways for young men to be able to express their more caveman instincts without constantly being told that that's bad and that they have to feminize themselves. Yeah, I do think that there is, I do feel like I understand that in that appeal of somebody like Jordan Peterson for exactly the reason that you just described that he dealt, he don't, I don't think he no longer deals in much, um, but he dealt. What's in, happening with him, by the way, is he alive? Is he very ill? He, he was very ill. <laughs> He was addicted to something, and then he went to, to an addiction treatment in some random Eastern European country and caught COVID. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, he was in like own... Bulgaria or something. Why are you going to Bulgaria? He was in Russia. Was he, he was in Russia. Oh. Uh, so apparently, what happened is his daughter got him into this all meat diet. That's he right. Had kidney, he had kidney failure. He had all kinds of health problems. He ended up. Uh, in Russia, he ended up addicted to painkillers. Like he's just a mess. As far as I know, he's alive. Um, but I don't think he's doing very well. And certainly whatever platform or whatever, let's say whatever soapbox he was standing on seems to have been kicked out from under him. That being said, I do think that there is something about this idea of the hero's journey that he tapped into really well. Um, I don't like where he took it. But I think one of the reasons that idea is so appealing to young men in particular is for the reason that you described, that they are looking for something. And when somebody comes along and says, I, ha I know what it is you want to be, you want to be a hero, and here's how you become a hero. Um, I think that's probably very appealing. And then if you stretch that out, a little bit, I think you very quickly get into um, dangerous territory because what is a hero trying to do other than vanquish foes? And inevitably, if you're on a hero's journey, you're going to need to find some foes. And there are some people in the Jordan Peterson world who are happy to supply you with those foes. Um, and I think we all know what that looks like. And, and I think it's very easy for somebody who's disaffected and kind of adrift to, to buy into that. Um, and it's dangerous, but I do think just at its root, the idea, the very simple idea of starting, you know, with the metaphorical cleaning up your room has some merit and it has some value. The, and in fact, I talk about it in my book, the idea of being, uh, I, I, I call it a habit of consideration 
which I think is maybe more namby-pamby, but maybe also a little bit um, more useful. The idea that not that you're being considerate, although you can be that too, but that you're considering what you're doing. So if you're sitting, if you're standing there washing dishes over the sink, if you're in a habit of consideration and you're considering that activity and that task at hand and you're devoting yourself to it in a kind of quiet, um, uh, qualitative way, I think over time, those small habits, those small habits of consideration can actually be really beneficial for boys and for girls. Mm. But I think, mm. I, I, I think for boys in particular, um, it can be helpful because it directs an energy that I think is too often unfocused. And even if it's a, something as stupid as doing the dishes or cleaning your room or doing your homework, there is something about that. There is... Um, there is something about the, the seeking out quality and a job well done that I think appeals to guys. Uh, when you say that, uh, that, that you're framing it in a slightly more namby-pamby way than the Jordan Petersons of the world, I think uh, this is uh, you should really consider putting that on some kind of a business card, that you take great ideas and you make them more namby-pamby. Uh, because that's a good thing to, I think it's a good thing to do. <laughs> I write books that take. There's such a concepts. hard edge. There's such a hard, unyielding edge to Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Uh, that, well, that see, I think is so off-putting to to so many people, including myself. Yeah, but there's also something. Isn't doesn't a secret little part of you could kind of love it as well? Like when he when he does an interview, like the 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 classic interview that he did with Channel Four in the UK, where the interviewer was a a, a very was a a woman who had come into the interview with a preconception about what he was and what he was saying, and he just refused to uh, to concede to her interpretation of where he fits into the culture. So every, she'd have to keep saying, so what you're saying is, and then rattle something off, and he'd just laugh and say, no, that's not what I'm, what I'm saying. You're not listening. You're, you're, you're treating me as if I'm a cardboard cutout of the person you think that I am. What I'm actually right. saying is, is X. I, I, I take your point that, that that stridency can get misinterpreted as a, a need to vanquish foes, and you're right that there's a, there's a cohort of young men who are... Uh, are a bit lost by the, what they're supposed to be doing and find some sort of comfort in the uh, Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu uh, realm, and that that can warp itself into hunting for foes and becoming an alt-right uh, dick. But mm-hmm. isn't, the, isn't the challenge then for us to find ways to take that instinct, not make it wrong, not say that you're terrible and you need to turn into a flower, but that... The alternative to to vanquishing foes is to simply be a stand for what is good and be, uh, you know, you don't need to always be fighting things. You sometimes it's good enough to just be master of the hearth and protector. Uh, Yeah, yeah, and I think that's I I I think you are exactly right. It was another Uh, editorial, by the way. It was not really a question, but I agree with it. And one of the things I'm really careful about in my book is saying, being very explicit about not wanting to reinvent masculinity, not saying that there's anything inherently wrong with what I think of as traditional masculinity. Um, And those attributes are strength, I think, and independence and fortitude primarily, those three. Um, 
which happened to coincide with the attributes of classic heroes. You know, they, they have all those traits. I think those traits are celebrated right now a lot in girls. We really elevate and celebrate strong, independent, fierce girls who endure. Um, but at the same time, we're, we're, we're trying to kind of poo-poo those attributes in boys because we worry that they lead to abusive behaviors. Mm. And in some cases, they do. But their suppression, so, their suppression actually perverts them more than finding a, a fruitful way to express them would. I think they can. I, I, think, I think suppression can do that. And I think it, 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 it can be corrosive for young men. I mean, just look at uh, just look at Trump. I mean, that what's interesting to to me about this whole sort of crisis of masculinity is that the most disaffected young men are the ones who find appeal in really the girliest. Like, I don't want to say girliest. That's offensive. That's sexist. The uh, the most sort of effete and fragile uh, and umbrage taking. Uh, vision of masculinity blustering as strength in the form right. of people like Giuliani and and Trump and these hangers on. I mean, like Jared Kushner. This is your idea about of, of masculinity. These people are fragile, genteel little flowers who get co opted by people seeking uh, some ersatz form of kind of phony masculinity, as if they were they were titans or, or gods. Well, I I would hesitate to put Jared Kushner in the same silo as Trump and Giuliani in terms of like anybody's looking to him as a paradigm of masculinity. That's true. I, he, I just like shitting on Jared when I can just and you're, allow and you're, me that. And you're correct to do that. Um, but there, that, that buffoonish caricature of masculinity so beautifully exhibited by Trump is, um, it is, it is befuddling. Like what, what is it about that that is so appealing to so many people I suspect it has something to do with um, that, that even though so many people like you and I feel like we're seeing through something, we're seeing through bluster. I think for a lot of guys, seeing confident bluster and bullshit is a pretty good stand in for what they envision masculinity to be mm. a never, a never backing down. Um, argumentative, boorish version, uh, warped version of what maybe they thought real men used to be like. Right, but see, my my suspicion is that that can only that illusion can only arise in a vacuum of real masculinity, and that vacuum of real masculinity is in part caused by. Uh, politically incorrect alert uh, here, drum roll, uh, feminism and the crisis of the role of men vis-a-vis oh. conventional gender roles. You know what I mean? Like you, 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 you classify all expressions of traditional masculinity as being toxic, people get lost, and then this weird, phony, uh, girly form of masculinity can become ascendant, which wouldn't be ascendant if you had a few more uh, generals telling people to make their beds all along. Um, I guess I disagree with you about feminism and political correctness. I think feminism at its uh, core and its central mission has done tremendous amount of good for 
women and for men. Um, but I think it has been co-opted and caricatured by its opponents to be something that it isn't. Uh, I also think political correctness, as loaded as that term is, has done far more good than harm in the culture at large, and it too has been co-opted and corrupted by its opponents. I, I think that um, both of those movements, feminism and political correctness, arose from a need that people had who were feeling marginalized and oppressed, and it would be hard to argue that they weren't, felt the need to create space for themselves. Um, so we've spent the last 60 years with women elbowing and muscling their way into the workforce, uh, elbowing and muscle, muscling their way into something approaching, even though we're not there yet, but at least trying to approach gender equality. Yeah, just that, just so we're not we're not uh, hashing over something that we already agree about. I should clarify. I shouldn't have said feminism because uh, that's not. You're right. I mean, I'm a huge fan and supporter, and find enormous inspiration from the femi- the second wave feminist from the Jermaine Greers and the Camille Paglias. I still read them, and and I, I think that 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 was an an unalloyed good, and that we should be fighting for equality. Uh, in terms of equality of opportunity for for all genders and and races, I'm an egalitarian in that sense. I guess what I'm talking about on the cultural level rather than the opportunity level is a certain sort of, uh, I guess political correctness is the old-fashioned word for it, but today it occurs as a kind of performative social activism which yep. which gets its rocks off being extremely censorious and hysterical and sort of schoolmarmish about things. So when I, when I said feminism earlier, I didn't mean... Uh, fighting for equal pay, for example, or fighting for equal representation in politics and in boardrooms. Uh, what I meant was, uh, you know, a, a young person being told that if he wants to go hunting, uh, that, that that's an expression of, of toxic masculinity, or that if, uh, you know, if he isn't aware of the catastrophic rates of domestic violence and isn't acting every single day to combat them, then he's personally responsible because, he's, because he has a penis. That, like, it's that kind of climate that I'm talking about. Yeah, but I also think that that the extremes tend to get magnified when that's not where most people are living. You know, we tend to pay a lot of attention to the extremes, but most people, I don't think, would make that argument. Most feminists, people who no. describe themselves as feminists, wouldn't yes. make that argument. No, so right. I, I worry that we end up get losing the forest for the trees when we isolate innumerable examples like you're describing, and then end up throwing a blanket over the entire. Uh, movement and yeah no we do, we we do do that but but just in my defense i'm not doing that i am pointing to a phenomenon which i think is social media is largely to blame for here which is which is that there is a there is a, a lost kind of um we don't have ro- we don't have roles anymore we don't have easy off the shelf roles anymore and because social media <laughs> magnifies all of those outlying examples we can feel besieged and agreed aggrieved and put upon uh, because you know the the most extreme examples of everything are, are constantly in our face on social media, and that drives us into more uh, extreme positions and uh, you know perverted forms of masculinity than than we might have if we weren't constantly looking at our screens and if we just had traditional role models. You are literally committing genocide right now. I just want you. To- <laughs> 
I'm not the one with wolves, with castrated wolves in my basement, Michael. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, it's all, what you're describing is all nuanced and it is, uh, there's, I, I agree with a lot of it. I disagree, obviously, with some of it. Um, I do think social media is corrosive and has probably maybe more negative than positive effects. I don't know. Um, and I also, I, but I guess I disagree with the idea that there aren't men out there that we can look to and say, well, he's doing a good job of, of being what a modern man should be. I mean, we had a president who was, I think, a perfect exemplar of it for eight years. Um, You're talking about Bill Clinton. Uh, of course. Fucked his way around <laughs> Arkansas. <laughs> really raped his way around Arkansas, like every good, upstanding, old-fashioned man should. Uh, there were probably only a few rapes with Bill Clinton. Okay. Um, but Arkansas is not a very big, populous state. So, so no, proportionally, it's per, it's, per capita, he raped his way around Arkansas. <laughs> but, I mean, Barack Obama spent eight years being president, and I don't recall any of the conservatives who would be arguing, I think, for traditional male... Uh, roles pointing at him and saying mm. that's who we should aspire to be. Um, we can draw our own conclusions as to why, but he's not unique. There are a lot of good dudes out there, um, both in the culture and just in people's sort of general lives that I think you can look to. I don't. I don't think that idea has been utterly lost. I do think the role of men in general, the sort of societal role of men is under question. And that questioning, I think, is leading to a lot of problems. I mean, I hope that there are lots of examples of good men. I'm frankly surprised, and I wonder if you are, by like when you lift up the... When you turn on the light in the in the kitchen of masculinity, the number of cockroaches that are scurrying sure. around. There, there's just been a revelation here in Australia. Uh, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the, the public broadcaster, uh, did a, a, a bombshell uh, documentary about some of the highest people in in government having affairs on the side in Parliament House while they were married. These are these are conservative family values politicians, and it right. being this sort of widespread thing of uh, even when it's not an affair, just sort of you know getting drunk and and sexual harassment, like this is a post-Me Too era and this, this behavior is still going on. You look at in the States as well. I mean, it, it, can you imagine how clean Obama had to be given the amount of people who wanted we, to bring him down? Like he... I'm sure he knew it. And he knew, I mean, but he, it can't even have just been calculating because he didn't, it, there was never any scandal even from his past that came up in terms no. of infidelity or mistreatment of women or being... Uh, inappropriate or being sexist. I mean, he was like a, a paragon of virtue in a in a climate where I'm always bemused. Like even when the grab and buy the pussy tape came out with Trump, I was like, I've I have never heard people talk that way. Like, am I so sheltered? I, these are not. I don't know these men, and so no. I can't tell if I'm just one of the rare idiots who is like blundering around, like Mister Magoo, unaware of all of the misogyny that's taking place around me. Or if if the if the system is selecting for the for for creeps, uh, right. or, or if we're exaggerating the problem, I think maybe all of the above. I also think that um, when I talk about good men, I'm not talking about perfect men because I don't think there is such a thing. I mean, Obama's probably as close as you're going to get 
to perfect, at least what we know about him. But I also don't think there's perfect women. There aren't perfect people. There's nobody that you can't point to and say, this person engaged in bad behavior on such and such occasion. We've all done it. Does it rise to the level of uh, sexual assault? I think in most cases, absolutely not. Um, but have we all said inappropriate things, done inappropriate things, made mistakes, hurt people's feelings, um, uh, been hypocrites, uh, done things we, we knew we shouldn't be doing, but did them anyway in the moment because they felt good? Like whatever it is, we're all guilty of all of it. When I talk about in this context, when I'm talking about a good man, I guess I'm talking about somebody flawed who is working on themselves and is doing their best to sort of be better day to day to day and trying to set a good example, knowing that we all fail at it. We all fail um, because we're all human and that's okay. I don't think we need to be perfect as a, as a gender to be um, helpful and to be role models. In that light, given that you're putting emphasis on sort of self-awareness and reform and forgiveness, uh, I recently saw a, a video of Sarah Silverman talking about forgiveness and the, and the left. In this cancel culture, and we all know what I'm talking about, whether you think there is one or there isn't one or where you stand on it, and there's a lot of gray matter there, but without a path to redemption, when you take someone, you found a tweet they wrote seven years ago or a thing that they said, and you expose it and you say, this person should be no more, banish them forever. They're going to find some place where they are accepted. And it's not going to be with progressives, which ironically means to be changed, progress. Does that factor into what you're talking about? I guess so, yeah. I mean, I, I think they're... We have to have some humility as people. We have to, you know, what's, what is that biblical expression? And forgive me, I am almost illiterate when it comes to the Bible. But don't point to the something in my eye, your eye, <laughs> when I've got a something in my eye. <laughs> Uh, I think it's. Uh, I think. I think. I think it's fool me once, uh, shame on uh, you. Uh, fool me twice. Uh, you're not going to fool me again, as George W. Bush uh, said. There's an old saying in Tennessee. I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee. That says, "Fool me once, shame on, shame on you." It fool me. We can't get fooled again. Um, it is so tempting, particularly because of social media, to direct our outrage outwards. It is so tempting to look at anybody's behavior and say it is unforgivable and uh, this person we should show no mercy towards. Um, and in some cases, some rare cases, I think that's probably true. But in most cases, um, you know, I think we can get over stuff, particularly because chance, the, the odds are better than not that we're guilty of similar behavior in some aspect of our lives. Um, but, but, but I agree with you that so much of that outrage is performative. It feels good and it gets you attention, but it's not particularly useful. And it, it causes, I think, some grave harm to people. 
It also causes grave harm to the left, which is part of my con- concern about it. I don't, you know, I'm less concerned about the individual people who get uh, hunted. Well, I, I suppose I am concerned about them because I might become one of them and have occasionally been <laughs> been one of them. The people who get hunted and hounded in a in a bout of uh, of puritanical public shaming from the from the left. But uh, you know, a bigger problem than that is just how off putting that is to the rest of the of sort of middle America and middle Australia, sure. and how I fear that it em- empowers people on the right to uh, to cast the entire left as being authoritarian and intolerant. Uh, what do you tell your, your son about creativity and art versus versus work work? That's the other thing that I think is interesting about uh, about the, the sort of gender conversation, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a worker in the 21st century. How do you think about that? Well, I've never made a distinction. I mean, my own work is creative. So I don't think in my household, we've ever drawn any kind of distinction between doing creative work or or work with the imagination or collaborative work um, as something separate and apart from the kind of job that you would go to every day. Uh, Do you ever regret not having the the stability or security of a profession? uh, I I have a profession. (laughs) I'm I'm an entertainer. I mean, traditionally, uh, this is like the word produce. I think, uh, I think, I think, profession generally is about vegetables and fruits, but not muscles. Uh. No, I, I, I don't. No, I, I, no, I don't. I don't have any second thoughts about what I've chosen to do uh, for a career, other than just, you know, sometimes I just worry about paying my mortgage, but, mm. but that's not. I've made a lot of decisions that were probably bad for me financially because they were better for me just in terms of my life. Like living in so, Connecticut. Yep. That's one of them. Hmm. That is absolutely one of them. I mean, I, you know, I deliberately did not uh, choose to live in Hollywood because I felt like in a way that would, that would, that would make me part of an industry that I didn't really want to be a part of. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to think of my career as an industry. I wanted to think of it as something that I chose to pursue because I enjoyed doing it and I enjoyed the kind of work that I was doing. Um, and I've been fortunate that I've been able to do that low these many years, but it definitely, I, I, there's no question that it has come at some cost. I assume you did your time in LA at some point. Very briefly, about a year and a half. When was that? 99 into 2000. When was Wet Hot American Summer? 2000. I think we shot it in 2000, I think. Mm. So would that have happened without LA? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That would have happened without LA. Right. Because those relationships were formed well, well before I was living in LA. What did you make of the city? Uh, I didn't like it. so why I left. I, I didn't like how pervasive show business was. You just, mm. you know, you, it was just, it, it, it just felt it in your pores and it felt oppressive. Um, I didn't like that thing of going into a restaurant and everybody looking up to see who's coming in and going out. I didn't like the schmooziness. I didn't like the way it corrupted or I felt like it was going to corrupt my thinking where you're like obsessing over box office returns like what like what do i give a shit about Mm. that 
Um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to live in the trenches of like doing guest star spots on sitcoms in the hopes of maybe having my own sitcom one day. Like I just didn't, I just didn't want to go down that path and I didn't know what it would mean to not go down that path, but I thought, let me try. It's, uh, it's very reminiscent of my experience of, of Los Angeles as well, where, you know, it's funny. It, it, it's funny. It's a funny thing about single industry towns. It, it doesn't even have to be entertainment. I remember I went to, I spent some time in DC after yep. having lived in LA for a year. And it was a few years after I'd, I'd fled LA and gone back to New York. And one of the things that I loved about, one of the things that made me fall in love with New York City when I was, uh, you know, just in my, in my teens when I first went there and vowed that I would come back and ended up living there for, for more than 10 years was the, the sheer diversity of people who were there. I mean, there, it, there is no other place I've ever been where there is a larger range of rich and poor and creative and uncreative and financially avaricious. And uh, I mean, just so many different people in so many different pursuits. If you're at a, if you're at a house party in Brooklyn, there's going to be a lot of people, you know, we have cliches about Brooklyn all being like Portlandia, but there is a large, a huge range of different uh, interests and, and careers and professions. Whereas DC, I was like, oh, I've seen this before somewhere. It, it's it's everybody's in on the same train. Everybody in DC is on a politics legal train, and everyone in yeah. Los Angeles is judging each other for where they are on this single train. And especially when you're young and you're trying to make it on that same train, and you're trying to do it for reasons of of creativity and uh, something deep within you that you, you have to say and you're not quite sure how or what yet. I found it so corrosive to be in an environment where everybody was judging you. Like the, perf- the perfect example was I, I wanted to do a an improv night in New York when I first moved there because I was involved in a charity, a Middle Eastern peace charity. And I called around a few mates who I'd made just at UCB and, and some other places. And everybody, the instant they heard the op- that there was an opportunity to perform, said yes. And it was like Paul Shear and all these people who were sort of heroes of, of, of mine came and did this night. And we raised money for charity and that was it. And then when I was in LA, I was organizing a stand-up night. It was for the Haiti earthquake, I, I think. And every single person to a person who I invited found a way of sort of slightly embarrassedly asking who would be there and whether or not there would be like, like, so where's it going to be? Like who's being invited? Like they're kind of angling to whether or not there's going to be an agent there or if they might, might get a script deal out of it or something. I'm like, do right. it for the fucking love. You're a performer. Come on, either do it or don't do it. I don't care if you say no, but like, let's cut this bullshit. It's not all about, it's not all about how this is going to get you up the ladder. Some, sometimes it's just for the love of the game. And I felt like New York was about the love of so many different games. And LA was about this, yeah, striving. Yeah. I mean, it's an industry town and it's unpleasant for that reason. So I didn't want to be there. Uh, you mentioned, you nodded earlier in this conversation to, to doing the dishes and just focusing on doing the dishes. And it it made me, it, it hearkened to a kind of, uh, rhetoric that I'm hearing a bit more and more lately around mindfulness and mm-hmm. stoicism and being present. And uh, and I love this counter movement. I love it as a counter movement to our distractedness and to social media. Uh, and I wonder whether that was accidental or if you're into that. I'm not into it as a movement. Um, not that I'm against it, but it's, it's not, it's not uh, a particular movement that I'm paying attention attention to but i do i guess my thoughts and and 
those thoughts overlap a great deal. And by the way, like I'm terrible at it. Like when I talk about <laughs> the habit of consideration, like I'm terrible at it. Um, I really have to like bring myself into it. It has to be a conscious effort on my part. I'm not saying that I'm any better at it than anybody else. I'm not, but I'm encouraging myself and in the book, my son to at least be aware that you're not in the habit so that when those moments present themselves, you can take that little bit of effort um, and apply yourself and, 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 and develop that consideration. Because, it, because when I do it, it actually is really helpful. And I guess that is probably very similar to meditative work or you know, the idea of being present. I, I think they're probably the same thing. I like to I like to pretend that I'm doing it whilst actually listening to podcasts. Sure, you know, yeah, I, and I I seem very contemplative, especially if I wear the small earbuds that are Bluetooth, <laughs> so people can't tell that I'm not <laughs> that when I'm gazing at the dishes, uh, I'm not actually listening to a, to a podcast it, because it, it, I, it is funny. Like you can you can consume a lot of Eckhart Tolle and Deepak Chopra and you know even Sam Harris now and uh, Ryan Holiday is another one of these guys who's obsessed with with uh, with stoicism. And you can constantly be listening to them talk about the importance of not listening to things. And you can go, uh-huh. yeah, that's very very <laughs> profound. I too <laughs> am enlightened about <laughs> emptying my mind of everything apart from the voice of someone telling me to empty my mind. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think these things are ultimately, uh, you know, we're not, I don't, I don't know that I'm trying to achieve anything. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm ever going to find nirvana, but I do think you can be pointed in that direction and have a sense that it's out there somewhere and just take little steps towards it. If the Vikings were right and you die and you go to nirvana, you're going to have a lot of egg on your face for saying that. I will be mortified. <laughs> Let's end with a few pandemic-related questions. Uh, if there was no pandemic all of a sudden, uh, there was no there was no coronavirus, uh, you, and you have one day before it comes back, what do you do? Probably what I'm doing now: hang out at home <laughs> with the wolves, with the wolves howling at the moon. Maybe get a pizza. Like the pandemic for me, in a lot of ways, has been terrific because it gives me just the best excuse to hang out at home and do almost nothing, which is, which is my preferred way of being anyway. You wouldn't go uh, to a Broadway show. You wouldn't go to the yeah. movies. You wouldn't go to a restaurant you love or a, ba- a packed bar. I, no, not a bar, but I might go to a, yeah, I'd probably go to a restaurant I'd probably go out for a nice meal. But, you know, but, but I think it's going to be very, very hard um, for us as a people, at least as an American people to, um, forget about the pandemic. So I, I'm anticipating even when it's all behind us and I'm going to a restaurant and it's packed, I'm going to be uncomfortable having been yeah. fully vaccinated and knowing everybody around me has been fully vaccinated. It's, it's not going to be the same for a while. I mean, it, in some respects, I think that'll be good. I think we should all just agree to do away with handshaking and like Fine. hugging and kissing. These are silly things. We don't need to be doing them. I'm, well, I'm advocating for when the pandemic is behind us, doing far more open mouth kissing as just a <laughs> as, as just a greeting to replace handshaking, even with the elderly, because now all of a sudden they can. Yeah, I mean they, they've been they, at risk. They, they've been so lonely that uh, yeah, particularly with the elderly, they need it. Uh, yeah, I, I like that. I don't want to. I don't like the elbow thing. Do you greet anyone with? Uh, I guess do you do that? No, I don't like the elbow. 
I don't like it either. When people do it to me, I return it. But uh, I, it, 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 I, it's, it's very, it's very affected. Uh, the, yeah. the other day, someone came up to me and uh, put her hands on her her heart and sort of yep. did a little kind of almost a namaste bow. Yep. Which uh, I thought was, <laughs> I thought was nice, but maybe overdoing it a little, maybe laying it on a little thick. I mean, I think the new, I, you know, I think we're struggling with greetings, pan, post-pandemic greetings, the way we're struggling with pronouns. It's like nothing quite feels right yet. Yeah. I think we just do away with all of them, with pronouns uh-huh. and greetings. I don't, you know, <laughs> hi, I know you. This is good. Yes. You're a friend of mine. This is, here we are. We weren't together and now we're together. And then when we part away, when we part ways, we won't be together. And we don't, we don't need to, I don't have a sword. I don't need to show you my hand. Yeah. You know? It's fine. I got it. Uh, when we can travel again, where will you go? Um, I, 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 my wife and I have been talking about going to uh, Copenhagen. Mm. Uh, I, I, just a city I've never been. Supposedly lovely. I'd love to see it. So I'll go to Copenhagen. That's great. I mean, that is exactly what the what the conservatives would imagine an effete liberal would Denmark. Denmark. Yeah. You know, you want to turn America into Denmark, and now you're going to go to Denmark. Well, the problem is that the Danes seem to be the happiest people uh, on earth, according to innumerable surveys. They always and not to be politically incorrect again, the sexiest. Are they? Can we just admit that? I don't know. I don't know. I just admit it, Michael. I don't have enough experience with Danes to know. The I went to I actually lived in Copenhagen for a semester, uh, and when I was of of university age, because I went there one summer when a friend of mine was uh, was studying there, and I it was I was so shocked by how pretty everyone is. I thought, mm. well, clearly I have to spend some university time here and have as much sex as possible. Uh, so I enrolled in Copenhagen Business School and uh, did a semester, for really for the purpose of having sex and adventure. And it's a beautiful right. city, as you say. I mean, it's cobblestones, uh, like ice cream and sex. Great. Perfect. Um, it, what do you think is going to happen in the next four years of, of politics? Let's just wrap with that. No, that's, that's, I've got that on my list, but you know what? That's a depressing. I'm not going to ask you that. I'm going to ask you a piece of advice about my own son, who's, now, who's just turned three. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very into dinosaurs mm-hmm. and animals of all kind. If you had to give advice to my son, what would it be? Um, so this is advice to your son, not advice to you. You could, you could do both and we could get a twofer. Uh, my advice to your son, I guess would be, uh, don't worry about the pants shitting. Your, Mm. your, your your parents are going to want you to, to clean your ass. Mm. Don't worry about revel in it. You know, you've mm. only got so many years of pants shitting. Yeah. Just enjoy this special time. Mm. Uh, just really, really take advantage of it. Let loose. Wow. Uh, and just, just, just have fun with it. Right. Okay. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll consider passing that along. And what about the advice for me? Is it going to be equally profound? <laughs> My advice to you would be, uh, don't worry about your son. He's going to be fine. You know? benign approach uh, his childhood with as much benign neglect as you possibly can. He's going to be fine. What if I see a dramatic uptick in pants shitting? Uh, again, it's fine. Like what's the worst that's going to happen? You well, know, he'll, he'll, uh, he'll shit his pants. Yeah. That's the worst that happens. It's fine. It's fine. Wow. 
I feel like I've been Eckhart Tolle and Deepak Chopra into wisdom <laughs> and calmness. I mean, and if you want to join him, yeah. there's going to be consequences. Like if you want to shoot your pants, go ahead, do it. Have a father son thing. Like there, mm. there's really going to be no consequences to it. If you decide to join him in that activity. I mean, it sort of depends where we are. If we're on a plane, it'll be unpleasant for other people, but really what are the consequences? None, 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 none. They might drag me off the plane like that Asian guy who they dragged off the plane. Is there? I don't know that story. He bashed his uh, head and they were screaming and everything. Don't you remember that a couple of years ago? He was like, no. it, it was like they, they've been dragging so many people off planes these days. It's hard for me to keep track of who he's being dragged. Off. Okay. Well, it was one of those amazing stories where he'd literally done nothing wrong whatsoever. He'd flown in from Asia and he was on a connecting flight, and they just overbooked the flight and they didn't want to. And they wanted some of the flight attendants. The flight attendants had to go back to their hub, and so they'd overbooked the flight. And to get the flight attendants on the plane, they had to bump a couple of people, and because he didn't have status. They told him to get off the plane, and he's he's like, I've been traveling for eighteen hours or something. I need to get mm. to the. I need to be there in the morning. I can't stay overnight in in whatever this uh, this hub city is. And so they were like, if you don't remove yourself from the plane, we're going to have to remove you. And he was like, well, I'm not. He, I don't even think he understood exactly what was going on because he thought he, I have a ticket on the plane, so I'm I'm here. Right. And they brought on these like not air marshals, but like the security, and they had to physically. And he's screaming and kicking, and they dragged him, and he smashed his head, and they're dragging this limp kind of uh this limp guy literally dragging him down the aisle smearing blood as he's kind of flailing about saying uh i i, I want my seat i want to fly i'm on the plane and uh it was not good not good pr for for you know and did he shit his pants <laughs> he didn't take advantage of that which is in my opinion was a real mistake uh michael Ian black a pleasure as always thank you for your for your time and take care of the wolves it's great to talk to you and you josh thanks for having me back on